Gracious Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. We thank you for your love, your kindness, your mercy, and that you would wake us up this morning, that we would be awoken by you, that we would be inspired by you, led by you to come to the house of God, and that we would rejoice, that we would echo the words of the psalmist who said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Lord, let us echo those sentiments. Let us live out those sentiments and and worship you this morning as your word goes forth. Let us have a joy and a desire and a passion for your word. Lord, give us listening ears. Give us believing hearts. Give us minds that understand. And Lord, help me to decrease so that you can increase. Help me to become less so that you and you alone can become more. Pray that your people would not hear me per se or see me, but see, hear you and obey you and that you alone, because you alone deserve glory, that you alone will be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. It seems like there is a, a sleepy something happening this morning. So good morning, bright and shining. You are awake on this Lord's day. Greet you on in the name of the Lord on this Lord's Day. As we continue our series, it's called First Things. <laughs> Not first things first, but first things. Although I love Pastor John for always adding his, his, on his take on what he thinks it is. First things. Uh, this introduction will be a little bit longer than usual. The reason being, last week's sermon was not uploaded uh, for a number of different reasons. But last week... We focused specifically on the evidence that points to the Garden of Eden, not just being a garden, but being the first temple. Last week, we focused on the Garden of Eden, not just being a garden, but being the first temple. We first, in last week's sermon, gained a proper perspective on Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 gave us what? The macro view. Or the broad view of creation with man being the apex of God's creation. Genesis 2 gives us a more narrow view or micro view. So we have in Genesis 1 this broad view. And then in Genesis 2 we have this microscopic view of creation. With its focus on man within the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, 8 tells us God planted a garden in Eden. Who planted the garden? God planted the garden in Eden in the east. The garden of Eden was divinely planted by God. And we made the point last week. Therefore, its physical beauty paled in comparison to its theological significance. God plants the garden. Therefore, its significance goes beyond beauty. And it is more theological than physical. Are you with me? What was the significance? We learned that Eden was a paradigmatic temple. Or it was the prototype, the first, the first model of the tabernacle. And the temple that would later be described in subsequent revelation or, again, later scriptures. The temples and sanctuaries that were later built in scripture, they followed the, here's the word again, the paradigm. The standard that was established in the Garden of Eden 
and whose fulfillment is found in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the, the true temple. We are, yes, the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we are not the end goal of that. Christ was the end goal of that. Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. So we set out to, to, to give just a few evidences, and, and I repeat, just a few evidences, because there are more evidences that the garden is the first temple than we set forth last Lord's Day. We considered the unique position of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was located in the east. As one examines the scriptures, especially the book of Ezekiel, we will find a consistent pattern of God's presence coming from and exiting the east. Amen? Concerning position, we also learn that Eden was in, in an elevated position or a high place. Genesis 2.10 tells us that a river flowed out of Eden and watered the land. Does water flow up or does water flow down? Water flows down. Once again, when we examine the scriptures, we find that God manifests his presence, meets with his people in high places, mountaintops. Temples, as we see later on in scripture, are built where? On mountaintops, high places. As we progress through scripture, we learn that there are also trees. Trees were present in the garden. Not more, more than, more than just the tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those were not the only two trees there in the garden, but there were many more. And as we examine the scriptures, we see that later temples were adorned with trees and carved with images of trees that were symbolic of what? The first temple that pointed back to the first temple, the Garden of Eden. We learned of the jewels or precious stones in the Garden of Eden. Gold, delium and onyx were there. We find, where do we find those same stones? We find those same stones adorned in temples and tabernacles, or tabernacles and temples, as we move forward in Scripture. Now, let me make a pause and a point for a moment. Just because we see gold in one place and gold in another place does not automatically make that place a temple. Are you with me? Or just because we see trees in one place and trees in another place does not necessarily make that place also a temple. Here's another one for you. Just because we see in the word east in one place and the word east in another place does not automatically make that place a temple. But when we see gold, temples, trees, rivers, elevated places all within the same place and in the same context then we must really pay attention because Scripture is trying to tell us something. Stand up and take notice. God is pointing this out for us for a reason. What is he pointing out? This place is, is paradigmatic. It is, it is following the paradigm of the temple. Finally, we learned that God's presence. God's presence is ultimately what makes a temple a temple. No matter how you decorate a building... God's presence is what makes a temple a temple. Eden was a sanctuary. Why? Because God's presence was there. No matter how many connections we make with trees and gold and river, etc., etc., the presence of God is the strongest evidence that we have that the Garden of Eden was the temple of God. Which led us to ultimately ask this, so then what was the purpose of the temple? Why was the temple constructed? Why did God plant this temple? The purpose of the garden temple 
was communion with God. The purpose of the garden temple was communion with God. The purpose of God planting a garden in the garden in the east. The purpose of the wilderness tabernacle. The purpose of the Jerusalem temple. And ultimately, the purpose of the, the, the sending the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was so that he might tabernacle among his people. Or that he might be not just God, but God with us. So that he might commune with his people. That, 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 that line, that dividing line between heaven and earth might be erased so that God may once again walk with his image bearers as he once did with Adam in the garden. Fellowship, communion was the purpose of the temple. Fellowship, communion was the purpose of the tabernacle. Fellowship, communion was the purpose of the, the, the Son of God becoming incarnate in the flesh of man. Why? So that he might once again fellowship with his people. Fellowship with those who place their trust in Christ alone. And I pray that that morning this is you. Now, we have considered that the Garden of Eden was the first temple. This morning, we are going to take that a step further. This morning, we will consider the first man and his vocation or work in that garden. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 2:15 through 17. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Please be seated. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy inspired word. Brothers and sisters, <clears throat> when was the last time you went to a restaurant and saw a doctor performing heart surgery? I'll ask it again. It's a strange question, right? Little ones, older ones. When was the last time that you went to a restaurant and saw a doctor performing heart surgery there? When was the last time that you went to a doctor's office and saw a chef cooking a steak? These are weird questions, aren't they? When was the last time you went to Smith's Bakery? Someone said this morning. And saw a dentist giving someone a root canal. I hope that the answer to all of these questions is never. And you might even add, that's ridiculous. Why would you even ask such a question? But, but let me ask you this. Why is that ridiculous? Why are those questions ridiculous? My son might say, a doctor doesn't work in a, in a restaurant, silly goose. Doctors do not perform heart surgeries in restaurants. Chefs do not cook in hospitals. Now, I understand there's cafeterias for those of you smart Alex who want to say <laughs> chefs don't cook, right? Or chefs don't cook in hospitals and a dentist does not work in a bakery. Each of those occupations, closely listen, they have a particular context in which they work. 
doctors work in hospitals, right? Chefs work where? Restaurants, kitchens, bakers. Where do they usually bake? In a bakery. I think you get the point. Now, let's take that understanding to our text for this morning. If we've established that the Garden of Eden was a temple, then what was the work or vocation of Adam? What does that make Adam then? If that's where Adam is to work in the temple, then what do you think that makes Adam? Point number one, Adam, the garden priest. Adam, the garden priest, or you could say temple priest. Adam, the garden or temple priest. Number one, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God, this is translated Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God took man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. If you're taking notes, a very important word for you to write down, to circle, or to parentheses, put parentheses around, is to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, places his image bearer in a specific context, the context of the Garden of Eden. Man is placed in the garden to work it and keep it. Now, if we take the the richness of the symbolism to mean that Eden was the temple, then when God places Adam in the garden to work it and keep it, it must conclude that Adam's work was a priestly work. Then we conclude that Adam's work was a priestly work. If we read the description of the tabernacle or the desert, uh, the, the tabernacle in the desert or the temple in Jerusalem, And we saw that God places someone in those contexts. God places someone in the tabernacle. God places someone in the Jerusalem temple. And and here's the instruction that he gives them. Work it and keep it. What would you conclude about their work? What do you think their work would be? It sounds like their work would be a priestly work. Going back to our example, doctors work in hospitals, chefs work in kitchens, bakers work in bakeries, priests work in temples. Are you with me? Priests work in temples. Their, their, their work is related to what? Their context or their environment. The Lord God places Adam in what? The first temple, the prototype of temples, the Garden of Eden. Adam's work was therefore a priestly work. Now, now, listen closely here. To say and argue that, that Adam was placed in the garden, therefore he's a priest, that, that's just, just too simplistic. There's more to that. Meaning, that's a good argument, that, that would be enough, but we can do better. We, we can give you more. Eden was a paradigm or standard for future temples. So Adam was also a standard for future what? Priest. Are you with me? If Eden, as we talked about last week, was a standard for future temples, then Adam also is a standard for future priests. He is a standard or a type, a shadow of the one who was to come. And fulfill the work of the priest. Are you with me? Now, how does scripture establish the priesthood of Adam? How do we know? 
simply because we said, well, this is a garden, and he said, work it and keep it, and that's all we're going to, is that all the evidence that we have? You know we're going to do better than that, right? Scripture linguistically connects Adam with the priesthood that we see in subsequent revelation, or Scripture uses words, the same kind of words, to identify Adam with the priesthood that we see in later Scriptures where priests are described and their work is described. Now, what, is, what are those words? Again, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. As we study through God's word, we will find the words work and keep are very important. They, they are in Hebrew, eved and shamar. Eved and shamar, to work and to keep or to work and to guard. Guard. Now, these words, work and keep or work and guard. They can be found throughout Scripture individually. Look at the Scriptures, you can find the word work individually. Look at the Scriptures, you can find the word guard or keep individually. But when these two words, work and keep, are used together, they are used in a specific context. Are you with me? Amen? So work can be found here. Keep can be found there. But when you find work and keep together, they are used for a specific reason in a specific context. So what is the significance of these words? Or in what context are they used? When Scripture uses these words together, it consistently uses them in the context of, guess what? A sanctuary. When Scripture uses work and keep, it usually, it, it consistently uses them within the context of what? A temple. Let's go to one. Numbers chapter three. Within the five books of Moses, the only times these words are used together is when you find them in the context of priestly duties or priestly work. Numbers chapter three. And verse five. <clears throat> If you'll notice, if you have an ESV Bible like mine, there's a, there's a title for the, this passage. And it says, what? The duties of the Levites. Who were the Levites? The priest. The priesthood. And the Lord God, or the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep. Guard, Eved, Shamar, over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard Shamar. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard, keep guard, Eved, Shamar, over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron as his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons. They shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Here, God is giving instructions to Moses concerning the duties or the work of the priest in the tabernacle or at the tabernacle. Notice verse 7. They shall keep guard. Where have we seen those words before? That's the same words as work and keep. Eved, shamar. We've seen these before. Where? Talk to me. In the garden. We've seen them in the garden. Work and keep. 
as the priest of Levi serve in the tabernacle. They are to work and keep work and guard. Keep watch over the tabernacle. Look at verse eight. They shall guard what all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Once again, we see these words put together within a specific context. What of the tabernacle? It is the priestly duties, the priestly work of the priest. Notice verse 10. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Brothers and sisters, what was the work of the priest? They were to serve in the Lord's presence. They were to keep watch or to guard the tabernacle. They were to keep watch or guard the people. They were to guard the priesthood, making sure the priest of God did not uh, fall to the allure of sin. And they were to guard the tabernacle from outsiders. If an outsider came in, they were to put it to death. No unclean thing enters, comes near the presence of God. No intruders are allowed. They must be prevented from entering. You're seeing it. They must be preventing, prevented from entering. And if they enter an unclean thing, a, a person who is not allowed, they are to be put to death. Brothers and sisters, what is this work? Sound familiar? Where did this work begin? Is God just making this up as he goes? Or is God showing them a paradigm or a standard that has been set from the beginning? What was the work of Adam, the first priest of God? What was his work? It was that of a priest. Though we may not see that description there in Genesis, God later tells us, God later comments on what Adam's job was. What was his job? God's holy inspired word gives us a commentary on Adam's work. Describe the priestly work of Adam in the garden for us, God. Sure. Easy. He is to serve in the Lord's presence. Guard the tabernacle. Guard the presence of God. Watch over God's people. He is to make sure that, that he stays away from the allure of sin. He was to guard the tabernacle from any outsiders. He was not to allow any unclean thing in the garden. Do you see the connections there? Numbers 8, 25 and 26. Just write it down. Numbers 8, 25 and 26. Numbers 18, 3 through 7. 1 Kings 9, 1 through 7. I'll say those again for you. Numbers 8, 25 through 20, 26. Numbers 18, 3 through 7. 1 Kings 9, 1 through 7. All of these are examples of working and keeping of the priest in the tabernacle and the temple of God. They were called to protect and to serve before the presence of God. And where was this established? In Eden. In Eden. Adam's commission, Adam's call was a priestly call. Adam's call was to protect and serve, to preserve the purity of God's sanctuary, and to put any unclean thing to death. Now, we are not told the ways in which Adam worshipped, but God. Do you think God is specific about the way people worship him? Or does he say, hey, worship me however you want? No, God is specific. And that is why some of the, the different styles of worship that we see are an abomination before God. They, they are strange fire before God. 
that when people come and, and say, here's the way that we're going to worship, as I've heard one church do. We're going to play worship music, and we're going to take our paint, and we're just going to paint all over the place, and that's the way that we're going to worship God, and it's an expression of God's Holy Spirit just taking control of me, and that's how I worship Him. That's strange fire before God. And if you know what I mean by strange fire, if you look in the Old Testament, the priest brought strange fire before God. It was not what he commanded. So when we think about the way people worship God, do you think God commands people to worship him in a specific way or that he says, worship me how you want? We see in scripture he commands a specific way of how we are to worship him. So, therefore, Adam would have been very aware of how he was to worship God. Adam was not making things up as he goes. Or, or, or that, that is to say this. There is more said to Adam than we have recorded for us in Scripture. How do we know this? Well, let's go to Cain and Abel. When Cain and Abel bring their sacrifices before God, do you think they were taking a guess? Well, he, he, maybe he'll like this vegetables. And, and Abel saying, maybe he'll like a lamb. I don't know. Hopefully it works out for us. Or do you think they knew what was acceptable and what was not acceptable? Because, the, which we'll get to in a moment, the prophet Adam communicated to them what was acceptable before God. And one obeyed and one disobeyed. Absolutely. We know, or we can at least give a, a huge assumption with Scripture to back us up. That God specifies how we are to worship him. And that Adam as priest was commanded to communicate that to the people. Amen. Adam's work was a priestly work. Adam was called to work and to keep. And again, you can be sure that there are details that were passed on to Adam that are not recorded for us in scripture. But we know that their ancestors knew. We don't know all that God told to Adam. But we can be sure there is more than what we see there. Men are not just making up how they want to worship. We also know that Adam, that Adam knew that there were, let me slow this to the end. We also know that Adam knew what he was not supposed to do. He knew what he was to do and what he was not supposed to do. There were trees in the midst of the garden, two of them at least. One, the tree of life. The other, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam knew that if he had disobeyed God, he would have polluted the garden. He would have died. And that we, he would have been expelled from the presence of God. And there is nothing worse than being expelled from the presence of God. So Eden, all of that, Eden was a sanctuary. Adam was its priest. And his commission was to serve, protect as priest in the sanctuary. Point number two, Adam is the garden king. Adam, the garden king. Genesis 1:28, and the Lord God and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. The Lord God created man in his own image. He was therefore the representative of God on earth. He was God's uh, vice regent or you could say vice gerent. He was God's representative on earth. He was given dominion over the entire earth. Imagine, dominion over the entire earth. But where must he begin his reign of dominion? In the garden. 
His reign must begin somewhere. And the first place where his reign begins, the first place where authority and dominion begin are in the garden. In a way, Adam was supposed to bring Eden to the rest of the world. Adam was supposed to bring Eden to the rest of the world. God delegated Eden to Adam. And Adam was called to expand the garden temple to the ends of the world. Adam was earth's first king. The first one who had been given dominion and authority. All things were to be under his rule. And he was to follow the example of his creator who made the earth, what? His footstool. Are you following me? The Bible says in Hebrews, or in uh, Isaiah 66, 1, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. The Lord God worked and he created all things in the span of how many days? Six days. Culminating in what? The, the, the building of a temple and a priest. Man is made in God's image. And what was he supposed to do? Follow the work of his creator. Model the work of his creator. Adam was to see God work six days and rested because his temple was complete. Adam was to take that idea, take that attitude, take that work to the garden, expand this garden so that he could do what? So that he also could enter into the rest that his creator entered, entered into the creator's Shabbat Sabbath. That was Adam's goal. That was Adam's goal. He had been given authority, all authority on heaven or on the earth to expand the garden to the ends of the world. He was to work it and keep it. And, and, and work for Adam was a joy. Work for Adam was not the, the toil that it was after the fall. The work for Adam was a joy. It was a joy to work it and keep it. It was a joy to fellowship with God. It was not a burden. He was working the work of a priest, keeping up the garden, watching over its furnishings, guarding the people as king, ministering God's word to the people. What people? His offspring. And keeping watch so that no unclean entered the garden of Eden. Adam ruled with authority given to him by God with, with the end goal, or as we've been saying, with the eschatological goal, the end goal of entering into that rest, that same rest that his, his creator entered into. That was the goal. Each seven day, and again, we don't know how many Sabbaths that Adam observed, but each seventh day, he was reminded as he rested from his work that there was an eternal rest that he was looking forward to achieving. There was an end goal that he was looking forward to enjoying. You know what that's like. Every single Lord's Day, you come, you sit, you worship, you enjoy the glory of God's word. And it's a foreshadow. It's a foreshadow of the rest that you hope to achieve eternally one day. Don't you want to stop working one day? Don't you? Some of you are, 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 are older. My mom is, is, is older. She would love to. Actually, if she didn't have to work, she probably would still work. But that's another story. We are all looking forward to the time that we can rest. 
we are all looking forward to the time when when we no longer have to work. Someone asked me this past week. We are saying that the, the, the Sabbath is, is a moral law that's written on the heart. How would an unbeliever know that the Sabbath is a moral law? I said, brother, they're observing the, the principles of rest without even realizing it's something that has been create, they have been created with. Everybody works hoping to, at the end of the day, get some rest. They've been made. It's been built into you to rest. It's been built into you to relax. And, and, and even when you work, you are working toward an end goal, whether that be with a lot of money and rest or enjoying with a lot of money things that you consider to be relaxing for you that are not work. We've been created with this. We, the unbeliever even knows he's, he's striving for a rest. He's striving for a break. Because God has created us with that desire to rest. In Joshua 21, the Israelites, they received rest from their enemies. In Esther 9, the Jews got relief from their enemies. What was this rest? It's the rest that we are all looking forward to. Saved or unsaved. But the unsaved does not have a, a they do not have a hope in their rest. They are, they are hoping to one day retire. But their earthly retirement will be the only kind of enjoyment they will ever experience apart from Christ. For those who trust in Christ, there is a greater hope. There is a greater rest that we are looking forward to. But it is only found in Christ. That rest is a foreshadow that all men long for. We've been created for that. Again, it is that eschatological rest of the Creator. It is the glory that man fell short of in the Garden of Eden. It is the glory that man lost when he rebelled against God. Adam was king and was given a means to accomplish that rest. But he failed. He failed in working and keeping the garden. Which leads us to our last and final point. Adam, the prophet, the garden prophet, the temple prophet. Adam, the garden prophet. Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. The Lord God, uh, Yahweh Elohim, comes to man and gives him a promise or a covenant of life. And that is, Obey and you will live. We're going to talk about this later as a covenant of works. Obey and you will live. Disobey and you will die. The Lord God comes and communicates his word to Adam. Now listen closely. What was Adam supposed to do with the word that God had given him? Was he meant to keep it to himself? Of course not. How do we know that? Because later we find that Eve had somehow received some information that sounds very similar to what God had said to Adam. When? When she is tempted by the serpent. He says, sir, did God really say that you were not to eat from any tree in the garden? And what does she say? We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, was Eve created when this command was given? Think. 
No, she was not. Eve was created later, not even created. So then how did Eve receive this word from God? And she's even said, God has said. Who told her what God said? Did God speak to her and say, now, Eve, hold on. I I told Adam something, but let me tell you. Was Eve king of the garden? Was Eve priest of the garden? No. Was Eve the prophet of the garden? No. And ladies, neither are you in your home. I just throw that in there. We are to follow the pattern established by God. Men are to be the heads of the home, to lead. And men, you are to lead as priest. So if you find your wife being priestly, maybe it's because you ain't being priestly. Men, you are to be prophet of your home. Men, you are to be ruler of your home. My son said to my wife the other day, Mom, you're not the boss. Dad's the boss of this house. And she said, what'd you say? He said it again. And he said, huh, Dad? We'll talk later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does Adam show his leadership in the garden? He communicates these things to his wife. Brothers and sisters, what makes a prophet a prophet? Predicting the future? And that's one aspect. But that's not all that makes a prophet a prophet. Above all, what makes a prophet a prophet is that he receives his revelation from God and then delivers that message to the people. He receives that revelation from God. It's not his own message. It's not his own ideas. He's not conjuring up these things in his own mind. He receives revelation from God and he delivers that message to the people. It is what God has decreed for his people. So when God gives his message, it must be heard. It must be obeyed. When we, the elders of this church, deliver God's word, it must be received. It's not our own ideas. It's not our own words. It's God's word. You're not receiving this word because you happen to like one elder over the other. You're receiving this word uh, not because you like the way that we put words together. You're receiving this word because it is God's word. And the moment we stop teaching God's word, stop receiving it. This is God's word. It deserves and demands our attention and our obedience. Adam received God's word in the garden. Adam received God's instructions. And Adam was to take those instructions, those messages, to the world. To the world. Starting with Eve. Starting with Eve. Again, How was Cain and Abel uh, aware of what was acceptable and unacceptable? Their prophet, priest, king communicated that to them. They were not guessing. They had specific instructions. Listen to this. When you read in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 29, we see that Noah's father, Noah's father saw Noah as one who would bring rest or relief to people from their work and from their toil. Where did he get that idea from? Where is Noah's father getting the idea that Noah would bring to people rest from their toil and their hard work? Where is he getting this idea? This idea of rest or work and rest, where does it come from? It comes from the priest, king, prophet, Adam. 
who is passing on to his descendants work and there will be a time when you will be able to rest. And every single time someone was born, every time a seed was born, they were looking forward to maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one that, my, that the prophet Adam spoke of, that God said would come. Wow. That was Adam's job. That was Adam's job. And it was a rest that they never entered into. Adam, the prophet of God, passes on to his children. Adam passed on God's word. He brought God's word to bear upon the people. He enforced the law of God. Upon the In a sense, he was a prosecutor for God. God commanded Adam, you are to be a priest of this temple. You are to be the king of this creation. You have my instructions. You have my law. Teach my law. No one eats from this tree. No one eats from this tree. Adam was placed in the garden under a period. And here's a new word for you if you're going to write it down. A, a probationary period. Adam was placed under probation, if you will, as in, in the garden. A, a time of trial. A time of probation that found its ultimate test. Where? When? In the encounter with the serpent. That probationary period found its ultimate test in the encounter with the serpent. And how did Adam do in that great test? For those, this is a terrible example. It just came to my head. For those who have ever been on probation. And you've got to go see your PO. There are certain tests that you must take. And if you pass the test, you get more freedom. Adam failed in his probationary period. And not only did he lose freedom, but he was exiled from the presence of God. Adam failed in his priestly commission. What was the work of the priest? Serve in the Lord's presence. Keep watch or guard over the tabernacle. They were to keep watch and guard the people. They were to, to guard the priesthood, making sure that no priest forsook or no, no priest of God uh, sought after the allure of sin. And they were to guard the temple from any outsiders. No unclean thing comes near. No intruders or they are to be put to death. And what did Adam do? He allowed the unclean thing to enter into the garden of God. My, my wife asked me last night, how, how would he know it's an unclean thing? Again, I communicated to her that, that there is more said to Adam than we understand or that we know. But did not every single animal come before Adam and did he not name them? And was this before or after the unclean thing enters the garden? It was before. And God would have communicated to Adam what was clean and unclean. How do we know? Because God later tells his people. What's clean and unclean? Why do you think that, that Abel did not, Cain and Abel did not bring to God pigs and serpents for a sacrifice? Because it had already been communicated to them, unclean, clean. Is that, a, is that an assumption? No. We can, we can, we can uh, gather that from the whole of Scripture. Pastor Zay pointed this out to me last week. Do you think that the language... Of Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you think that's a random statement that God is making? I think it's random that God is just saying, hey, there's going to come one serpent who's going to crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. A skull crushing seed of the woman. Is it a random statement or is it an intentional statement? What's the intention? Adam, there's going to come one who is going to do what you fail to do. 
When the serpent came in, you should have stomped his head. And there will come one who will accomplish what you failed to accomplish. Adam, as soon as you saw that serpent, you should have stomped on his head. But since you failed, there will come one who will not. He will stomp on the head of the serpent. He will not allow any unclean thing to the holy presence of God. He will not distort God's word. He will fulfill what you have failed to fulfill. The serpent, he allowed this unclean thing into the holy presence of God. He allowed the serpent to distort God's word. He did not guard his bride. He did not keep himself from the allure of sin. He ultimately caused sin to enter into humanity and broke his covenant with God. He failed. He fell short of the glory of God. And he did not earn the right to the tree of Should he have succeeded, he would have been given the right to the tree of life. But even in his failure, there is a gospel promise. Adam, you have failed, but I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will come one who will be the fulfillment of the priest. He will be our great high priest, prophet, king. And you... Adam, though you have failed, he will not fail. He will crush the head of the serpent. No, he did crush the head of the serpent. He did guard the presence of God. He did guard the people of God, his church. He did make his word known. He did, he did keep himself from sin, and he did destroy the works of the devil. His encounter with the devil was much like Adam's encounter with the devil in the wilderness and in other moments of encounter. And what did Jesus do? Did he even entertain what Satan was saying? I said to my son when we were doing this part of worship, I said that every time Satan spoke, Jesus said, get out of here, you're a liar. And I would poke my son, get out of here, you're a liar. Get out of here, you're a liar. And he thought it was hilarious, but that Jesus did not even entertain him. Instead, he gave to him God's word. He went through a probationary period, the Lord Jesus Christ did, as a second Adam and did not fail in his work. All the way to the cross, even when, when, when Satan, speaking through two thieves, says, and speaking through the crowd, says, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. He did not fail in his work or in his probationary period, but completed the priestly work that God called him to do on behalf of his people, his elect. Amen. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, <clears throat> and death reigned through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. That is huge real quick. Uh, let me read that to you again. Look at that again. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. You see that? Paul is saying the law didn't begin in Exodus. The law began when someone sinned or there was always a law that man rebelled against. You see that for someone who says, no, the law began in the book of Exodus for the children of Israel. Paul is saying there's no sin where there is no law. Then how did Adam sin if there was no law? You with me? 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass leads to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Listen to last Wednesday's sermon. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Since then. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession and let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy in time of need. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he is able to save us of the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for First for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He is our great high priest. He is our great high priest. And what's the point? Adam, prophet, priest, king is pointing to someone greater. Greater than Noah. Greater than Abraham. Greater than David. Greater than Solomon. He is the true high priest of God who goes before God, offers up his blood before God for us who trust and believe in him alone. He is our mediator. He goes to God on our behalf. He passes through the heavens, enters into the holy of holies and offers his blood before God. And what does God say? What a blessing it was to be able to speak to a dear sister yesterday. And I said to her, the words that I want to be on my lips when I die is this, justified, justified. What is that? Innocent, innocent. Why? Because of my own good deeds? Because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Little ones, if you get nothing, get this, that in Jesus Christ, You can be innocent of your sins. Little ones, get this. Right now, if you do not trust in Christ, you are guilty before God. But if you trust in Jesus, you are innocent before God. So place your trust in Him alone. He sprinkles His blood as the priest of the Old Testament. He sprinkles the blood on the people and makes us clean before God. 
I pray that that is your hope. I pray that that is where your hope and your rest lies so that you can close your eyes and say, not I hope, not I'm not sure, but I know that I know that when I leave this world, I will stand before him innocent. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing. Knowing. That suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. By his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What? What? That God has restored communion with his people. That God has restored communion with his people. That the temple and the priest has been fulfilled in Christ. And he has accomplished what he had set out to accomplish from the very beginning. Fellowship and communion with his people. Do you enjoy that today? Is that yours today? Do you rejoice when you come to the Lord's, to to the house of God on a Sunday, knowing that there will be a time as the word goes forth where you will be fellowshipping with God, communing with God at his table, with his people, in song, in fellowship. Do you enjoy the fact that God has provided this, this communion for you in his son? Well, if you do, if you do, then when we come to the Lord's table this morning, it should be of great significance every time we come. Every time we come, we come to rejoice that redemption has been accomplished, applied to his people, and that that rest, we're getting a taste of it now, and that we will one day soon enjoy it forever. Enjoy it forever. Let's stand.